The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre, Part 2, The Rebirth, Rene Descartes. René Descartes was born March 31, 1596, in La Haye, France, the son of a wealthy lawyer. Sadly, Descartes' mother contracted tuberculosis a few days after his birth and later died. Baby René nearly died as well, and he remained a weak child throughout his childhood and youth. Inherited wealth allowed Descartes to travel extensively and to pursue intellectual and scientific interests. After a good Jesuit education, where he was taught to reason and argue and to question everything, at age 17, Descartes began to wander Europe, including a stint in the Bavarian army. In 1628, Descartes moved to Holland, where he stayed for most of his life. Descartes never married, but he did have a mistress and later a daughter who sadly died at the age of five years old. As a philosopher, Descartes devoted himself to emerging from Plato's cave and seeing things as they really are, to discovering truth. And Descartes preferred to do much of his thinking in a most unusual place, in his bed. He would arise late and sit up in his comfortable bed thinking. And in fact, this thinking turned out to be quite productive. The story is told that as Descartes was propped up one morning on his pillows, he noticed an ordinary housefly flying around his bedroom. As he watched this insect flying around the room, Descartes realized that he could pinpoint the fly's position based upon the fly's orientation to each of three planes. For example, if you could somehow freeze the fly in time, in mid-flight, you could draw a line straight down from the fly to a specific dot on the floor. Similarly, you could draw another line directly to the right wall, and a third line to the back wall. The location of the fly in the room could then be precisely mapped according to its orientation to these three walls. Each dot on each of the three walls would be a coordinate of the fly's location. In fact, this is now known as the Cartesian Coordinate System, or X, Y, and Z axes. A quick digression, if you will allow. Descartes wrote under the Latin name Cartesius. Now, this was a common practice at the time, and it served to unite the philosopher to all of the great philosophers of the past. It also disconnected him somewhat from his homeland of France and adhered him to a philosophical tradition tracing back to ancient Rome. No matter one's native language, all of the educated people of Europe at the time wrote and understood Latin. 
Not that this actually helped all that much with practical communication. For instance, an American in the 1700s who did not speak French could conceivably speak Latin to a Frenchman who did not know English, and the two could converse in their common language of Latin. However, experimentation with this communication did not work out so well. It turns out that Latin, being a dead language, is open to interpretation regarding its pronunciation and usage in spoken dialects. So a French and English speaker would typically pronounce Latin quite differently. In any case, Descartes' Latin name, Cartesius, lends itself to the name Cartesian, as in the Cartesian coordinates, and the science of cartography, or map-making, which of course uses X and Y coordinates. Now, based upon these X, Y, Z coordinates, Descartes had laid the foundation for calculus. It's the measure of movement over time. So as you imagine this fly continuing to move around the room, we could track the X, Y, and Z coordinates. In fact, trace the pattern of movement of those individual dots. This pattern of movement over time eventually leading us to the mathematics of calculus. Descartes' major contribution, for which he will forever be known as the father of modern philosophy, is the method of doubting. In his book Meditations, Descartes decided to restart philosophy from scratch by doubting everything that he could, until he found something that he could not doubt, and from which he could build a new philosophy. You see, the British were busy promoting the ideas of empiricism, that we can understand the physical world through systematic observation of the workings and structures of the world around us. However, Descartes reasoned, there was a fundamental problem with the British thinking. By the way, the French and the British have always distrusted each other's thinking. So this contrarian approach to the British would have surprised no one. In fact, if you're ever visiting England and perhaps you tell a joke that doesn't go over very well, or you say something that is unpopular with your hosts, you can always recover by smiling broadly and saying, a French guy told me that joke. And this strategy works amazingly well. But back to our story. Descartes said that the British had a fundamental flaw in their reasoning about empiricism. How did they know that they could trust their senses? They simply accepted that everything they saw, heard, tasted, touched, or smelled was real. But how did they know that? For instance, how could you know that you can trust your senses and that you're not actually a brain in a vat. Now, let me use a more modern analogy for this brain in a vat. Perhaps you've seen the movie The Matrix. How could you know that you are not actually a human being hooked up to a giant computer? Your physical body is actually in some kind of pod. 
And everything that you see, everything that you hear, taste, touch, and smell, is being electronically pumped into your sense organs. Everything that you see around you is a hallucination. It's created by the big computer and is being fed directly into your nervous system. So the objects that you see, the chair that you may be sitting in, those other people around you, they do not really exist. Now, of course, if you reach out for that table in front of you, you will feel it. And if you tap on it, you will hear it. And if you lift it, you will feel the weight of the table. But that does not prove that the table is actually there. All that demonstrates is that your hallucinations are coordinated. So how would you know that what you see around you is really real? How do you know that you can trust your senses? So Descartes began by doubting everything that he could. The world, his body, things, God, the self, church, Aristotle, until he found something that was unassailable. And how would he know when he had found such a thing? Because it would have the quality of being an idea that was clear and distinct. And so Descartes began to doubt. I doubt that my senses are real. I doubt that the physical world exists. I doubt that God exists. I doubt that Aristotle exists. I doubt that other people exist. I doubt that I exist. Now, at this point, Descartes had a philosophical problem. Because if I am doubting that I exist, well, then there is no doubt that I am doubting. And if I try to doubt that I'm doubting, well, I'm, I'm still doubting. And if I try to doubt that I doubt that I'm doubting, will you see where this is leading? The one thing that I cannot doubt is the fact that I am doubting. For me to be able to doubt that I exist, there must be a me in order to doubt. So, Descartes' conclusion was that the one thing that he could not doubt, the singular, clear, and distinct idea, was the fact that he was doubting. And he put that into Latin. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. The proof of my existence is that I think. And from there... Descartes went on to conclude that there were a number of things equally certain. God, time and space, the world, mathematics. These things, he said, were innate. They were inborn to the mind. You derive them not from experience, not from British empiricism, not from your interaction with the world, but from the nature of your own mind itself. Now, for instance, Descartes philosophized proofs for God. We have an innate idea. I can imagine a perfect being. Now, this image of a perfect being could not have come from my own mind because my mind is imperfect. The idea 
of a perfect being could only come from an infinitely perfect being. And, of course, one quality of perfection is its existence. So, for instance, if I gave you the choice between having an imaginary $1 million and a real $1 million, which one would you choose? You see, the imaginary million dollars is not as good as the real $1 million. A a million dollars that exists is better. And similarly, a perfect being that does exist is more perfect than an otherwise perfect being that does not exist. Perfection being what it is, the perfect must exist. In fact, the non-existence of a perfect being is itself a contradiction. There is much more to Descartes. He was a mathematician as well as a philosopher. He made a variety of mathematical discoveries, most especially analytic geometry, applying algebra to geometry. You remember the Cartesian coordinates. He was also a scientist, and he made a number of innovations in mechanics and optics as well. And he was the first to note the idea of a reflex. Now, the idea that some of our actions are reflexive leads inevitably to the possibility that all of our actions are reflexive. Descartes theorized that animals have no need for a soul. They are automatons. But being a good Catholic, he exempted human beings. We do have a soul. But this raises what is called the mind-body problem. The basic question is how the mind and the body interact. And Descartes' philosophical view is called dualism. Descartes believed that the mind and the body are separate. The body works on physical principles. Matter must touch matter in order to move. The mind, or the soul, however, is immaterial. The mind thinks, perceives, wills, provides information about the external world. And the human body is the seat of the soul. The essence of the soul is thinking. So, let's say I hand you a quarter, and I ask you to flip the quarter in the air and call heads or tails. You would be able to do so quite easily. By flicking your thumb, you would launch the quarter into the air, you'd catch it in your open palm, and then slap it on the back of your closed fist. If, on the other hand, I ask you to flip the quarter in the air using only your mind you would be unable to do so. You are able to use your physical hand to flip the physical coin, but you are not able to use your immaterial mind to flip the physical coin. But the real problem is, how does your immaterial mind interact and cause movement in your physical body? How can your thoughts make your body move? Now, in history, 
People use what is most interesting around them to theorize about other things, especially themselves. Now today, most everyone talks about psychological issues using computer analogies and information processing models. But in Descartes' day, it was the mechanics of clockworks and hydraulic systems that were the cutting edge of technology. Descartes was obsessed with this problem of movement. He was acquainted with pneuma, or fluid concepts, that dated all the way back to Galen. And Descartes began to wonder if perhaps those pneuma concepts were wrong. Was there a simpler, more mechanistic explanation for movement? Descartes' observations of the pneumatics in the royal gardens of Saint-Germain, France, convinced him that there was a better explanation. Nerve fibers, he supposed, were like the water pipes in statues. They were filled with fluids, or animal spirits, that activated muscles, causing the bulging of muscles when the muscles contracted. What he was suggesting was the radical idea that life, including much of human life, was mechanical. It functioned by the same natural laws as did physical entities. The human body is an automation. The nerves are tubes. The muscles and tendons are engines and springs. The human body works like a machine, creating movement by mechanical means. Animals, on the other hand, are totally mechanical because they don't have souls. And lacking souls, animals also lack human feelings, thought processes, free will, concerns for immortality. Incidentally, this leads to a very unpleasant part of the Descartes story. Believing that animals had no souls and therefore no feelings, Descartes conducted vivisections of living, unanesthetized animals, viewing their struggles and cries as automatic responses of soulless machines. As a dualist, Descartes had to explain how the mind and the body interacted. Based upon his dissections and studies of the body, Descartes discovered a particular structure in the brain that he believed was the place where the soul met the body. This place was called the conarium or pineal gland. Now, typically, the structures on the left side of the brain are mirrored by structures on the right side of the brain. And although they may have different functions, the structures on each side of the brain are generally mirror images. The exception is the pineal gland, right in the middle of the brain. Now, today we know that the pineal gland actually functions in the sleep-wake cycle. It produces melatonin that creates a sense of drowsiness when it's time to go to sleep. Descartes, however, identified the pineal gland as the controlling mechanism for animal spirits. Animal spirits within human nerve tubes pressed upon the pineal gland to produce sensation. And the tilting of the pineal gland moved animal spirits into muscles, causing them to move. Allow me to illustrate. Extend your right arm and then put your opposing hand over your biceps. Now, 
curl your extended arm toward you and notice how your biceps becomes fatter and thicker, like a balloon filling with fluid. Those are the animal spirits entering your biceps, causing it to move. Now, incidentally, be sure to look around the room before you perform this experiment to make sure there's no one else who might misunderstand your gesture. Having postulated this material explanation for the physical world, Descartes stopped short of denying the soul. He said that the human body is like a machine. Fellow Frenchman and philosopher Julien de Lemaitre pushed Descartes' mechanism to the extreme. De Lemaitre said that the body is a machine. He described the human body as an enlightened machine. It's a machine that winds its own springs. You know, of course, most physical mechanisms require some kind of external influence in order to keep them wound up. The human body, however, is able to wind its own springs, but is otherwise completely mechanical. Now, being a good Catholic, Descartes would not go this final step and open the door to atheism. However, Descartes did go one step further, a step that would generate enormous controversy in his time. He made a deist hypothesis. He suggested that outside of the human soul and free will, all of creation works mechanically. He postulated that God designed the physical world and set it in motion, wound it up like a clock, and let it run. But because the world was perfectly designed, there was no need for God to step in and intervene once things had gotten going. Now, this, of course, implies that God would have no need for miracles, that the laws of physics will not be suspended for anyone. And this furthermore implies that Jesus Christ was not some sort of great intervention in the course of human history, time and space, and that prayers, requests that God intervene and change the workings of the world for our benefit, simply do nothing at all. Uh-oh. Well, the Calvinist theologians of Holland attacked Descartes. Aside from this non-traditional idea of deism and a mechanical universe, the pious Catholic Descartes maintained a belief in free will. Now, free will does not jive so well with Calvinist predestination, the idea that God already knows exactly who will be going to heaven, who will be going to hell, and what is going to happen throughout human history. Descartes' friends, fortunately, intervened on his behalf, rescuing him from any threats. Descartes' theory of movement was eventually tested by a Dutch physician, Jan Swammerdam. If indeed animal spirits flowed into a muscle when the muscle contracted, then muscle contraction could only occur when the muscle was connected to the pineal gland. And furthermore, fluids flowing into the muscle would necessarily increase the muscle's mass. So Swammerdam tested Descartes' theory by suspending a frog leg muscle in a sealed jar. 
Emerging from the jar was the sciatic nerve, which Swammerdam would stimulate with an electrostatically charged scalpel. At the top of the jar was a thin pipette, which Swammerdam sealed with a small drop of water. So if the volume of the muscle inside of the jar increased, well, it would push the water drop out. And if, on the other hand, the volume of the muscle decreased, it would pull the water downward into the jar. In either case, any change in the volume of the muscle caused by the introduction of animal spirits could be measured. Swammerdam touched the sciatic nerve with the charged scalpel. The frog leg contracted, and the drop of water did not move. The volume of the muscle did not change, meaning that no animal spirits flowed into it. And besides, the muscle was not connected to a pineal gland from which animal spirits could flow. Descartes' theory was wrong. But his theory stimulated research and advanced the field. Now, the legacy of Descartes remains impressive. Cartesian philosophers led the assault on superstition and the belief in witchcraft in France. These beliefs and the persecution of women as witches were wiped out in France in the 1700s. Descartes, along with Bacon, freed philosophy from the authority of Aristotle and scholasticism. And Descartes refuted skeptics who denied the possibility of certainty. He invented analytic geometry with Pierre de Forme and laid the foundations for calculus. His appeal extended across European strata from mechanistic scientists to mystical theologians. In 1649, Descartes was invited by Queen Christina of Sweden to move to Sweden and tutor her royal majesty. Descartes did not particularly want to go. He was eventually persuaded after Her Royal Highness sent Her Royal Navy to collect him and escort him back to Sweden. And it turned out that Princess Christina was also a royal pain in the ass. For instance, she wanted her lessons at five in the morning, three days a week, through sleet, rain, and snow. And you'll remember that Descartes liked to sleep in. She was not a particularly brilliant student. He was a genius. He was Catholic in a Protestant country. The winter was horribly cold. He had a lack of sleep, no privacy. He hated court life. And five months later, he was dead of pneumonia at the age of 54. He was buried in Sweden. Sixteen years later, friends in France shipped a coffin to Sweden in order to return Descartes' body to France for reburial. Unfortunately, the coffin that they sent was too short. In order to get Descartes' body to fit, the Swedes severed his head from his body. They shipped the body back to France, but they kept the skull there in Sweden. And Descartes' skull passed around among Swedish collectors for the next 150 years, until it was eventually returned to and reburied in France along with the rest of his body. 
Now this is, I am sure you will agree, an ironic end for the man who championed the separation of body and mind. <laughs>